This is Guidepost, a new podcast from the publishers of The CRISPR Journal. Welcome to Guidepost. I'm Kevin Davis, executive editor of The CRISPR Journal. Guidepost is brought to you by Synthego Corporation, which is increasing accessibility to CRISPR through its portfolio of engineered cells products and CRISPR kits. Learn more at synthego.com. In this episode, our guest is Kevin Esvelt, who leads the Sculpting Evolution Group at the MIT Media Lab. Kevin's been one of the leading voices in the potential use of gene drives aided by CRISPR to tackle diseases such as malaria in Africa and tick-borne diseases in New England. While Esvelt leads by example to communicate with local residents, he's also wrestling with how to harness the power of gene drive technology in a safe and effective way. Kevin talks about his early interest in CRISPR and gene editing and the potential application of gene drives. Nice to meet you, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, so you're with the MIT Media Lab and you have a wonderful group title or lab title called Sculpting Evolution. So before we get there, just tell us what, what was your scientific uh, background and how did you end up Sculpting Evolution at the MIT Media Lab? Well, I've always been fascinated by natural evolution, thanks to a timely visit to the Galapagos when I was in the sixth grade. Uh -huh. And I wanted to know, how is it that so many marvelous creatures are created? And can we learn how that is done and create equally marvelous things ourselves? Yeah. And since then, I've learned a bit more, come up with a few ethical objections to the way that natural evolution does things, yeah. the general apparent total indifference to animal suffering yeah yeah animal euphoria yeah to any kind of notion of right or wrong okay. evolution is amoral i'm not saying it's immoral yeah because it's it's a physical process yeah but the fact that it doesn't care about or optimize well-being i view as a fundamental flaw in the universe okay so i don't know if we can ever learn enough about evolution to change that okay but you might say that that is our broader goal. Evolution okay. has no moral compass. Okay. Well, this got we do. This got deep How can we hurry? fix it? <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but more broadly, you might say that sculpting evolution is an excuse for us to work on anything interesting. Because okay. evolution applies to any self-replicating informational pattern. Yeah. That is, it's not just genes. Genes are convenient because they're digital, so they're easy to read. But it's also culture. Okay. Culture evolves in the same sort of way. Ideas evolve being transmitted from human mind to human mind, human mind to different kind of digital format in a computer, and then back to another human mind. If culture evolves, then culture is something that we are within our purview to try to change. Hmm. Because our primary mission, one might say, is to sculpt the evolution of technology development. Mm -hmm. That is our ascent up the tree of knowledge, mm -hmm. consuming the fruits. How can we ensure by changing the fitness landscape governing scientists mm -hmm. exploring this tree that we have the best chance of finding the fruits that we need in order to continue improving human and environmental well-being all right while avoiding those that could be hazardous to our collective health okay so in the years preceding your setting up your own lab at the mit media uh, lab um were you always working in sort of evolution was that always but kind of a major part of your major focus of your research interest? Yeah, so I started off in, uh, started my PhD at Harvard University 
I was in the molecular and cellular biology program, but I ended up joining David Liu's lab. He was in chemistry and chemical biology at yeah. the time. And David is amazing because, first of all, when I walked in and proposed 10 different project ideas, he said, this is fantastic. You'll fit right in. We tried the first two. Third one's really interesting, but I'm not sure it'll work for these reasons. Fourth, and so on. He said, but what I'm really most interested in is this, is the, you expressed this idea that you wanted to figure out some way to automate directed evolution. So mm. directed evolution is where we apply evolutionary principles to optimize the function of typically biomolecules that we don't understand well enough to rationally design new functions. Mm -hmm. So if you don't understand how it works well enough to engineer it, mm -hmm. then one alternative is to make a billion variants, mm -hmm. test them all, pull out the ones that do the, what you want the best, then make a billion variants of those and do this on and on. And it was really pioneered by Francis Arnold um, back in the 80s, mm -hmm. and it's gotten better since then. But yeah. the problem is it's a lot of work. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of laziness. That is, how can we engineer the world such that it solves our problems for us? Okay. So the idea was, is there a natural system that we can harness that evolves on its own that we can tweak to make it evolve the things that we want okay. autonomously? Okay. And this was inspired by a Jerry Joyce system where he made a continuous in vitro evolution of RNA enzymes, mm -hmm. an am amazing 1997 paper by, by Jerry and coworkers. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, can we harness some natural system to make a more general platform for doing this? And this eventually, after six years of effort mm -hmm. and many wasted mm -hmm. steps, um, led to phage-assisted continuous evolution. And the mm -hmm. idea here is that you just take a bacteriophage, M13 filamentous phage class. This requires gene three in order to has to be expressed, produce protein three, very unimaginative phage names, in order to infect a new cell. So we remove gene three from the phage, we replace it with the gene we want to evolve, and we put gene three under the control of, a, of cellular expression conditions in the host cell, such that the cell will produce protein three proportional to the phage doing what we want. Mm -hmm. That means every phage has an evolutionary incentive to perform the molecular trick that we desire. Mm -hmm. And in response to its ability to do that, it gets more of this critical protein it needs to continue its life cycle. Mm -hmm. So then we sit back, hit start on the pump. Mm -hmm. It fe constantly feeds the lagoon, okay. new cells, and the phage evolve a couple of generations an hour, right. and a billion variants right. in a population. And it, a couple of days later, it spits out what you want. Okay. And yeah, David's used it for a lot of amazing things since then. All right. And did that, how did that then segue or lead into your interest into gene drives? So that, of course, touches on how did I first get involved in CRISPR? And this was in, in 2011, I moved to the, to the Wies Institute, where I was a technology development fellow working primarily with George Church, who was oh, yeah. my fellowship mentor. Right. And one of the things I wanted to do, it wasn't my primary interest, but I thought, you know, I'll build a PACE system here. But there were a lot of DNA origami folks. And they use M13 phage as their scaffold. PACE system? Sorry, the phage assisted continuous evolution. Sorry, acronym is PACE. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to build one of those there just for other people to use and so forth. But the DNA origami folks were growing leader cultures of filamentous phage wild type because they use the genome as their scaffold. Meaning there's phage everywhere. So it kept infecting my cells. I could not get a wild culture of 
E. coli with F plasmids that did not become infected with filamentous phage because it just saturated the air of the entire floor. <laughs> but I recalled hearing something about a bacterial immune system that could be programmable. Okay. So I initially tried to tinker the, the E. coli system to get it to exclude the filamentous phage. Yeah. It didn't work very well because type 1 systems are not all that great to work with. And then I read Emmanuel's paper on Cas9. And I yeah. thought, oh, well, this is great. I'll try it. And so I put it in and then added a few guides targeting filamentous phage, wild type, recoded the gene in mine. It worked beautifully. Mm. And then, of course, came Jennifer and Emmanuel's paper on in vitro activity. And I thought, well, this is going to be big. But I didn't think of using it until Prashant from the Prashant Molly from the church lab came to me and said, so I have this genome editing platform for analysis completely all worked out for talons. You've been working with Cas9 in bacteria we should collaborate and do this in eukaryotic cells. And I said, but yeah, it's going to be huge, but Jennifer has been doing this for six months. Like, is this really worth our time? And there's probably many other groups that are going to be trying to get it working too. And, and Prashant said, this is going to be so big that if we discover one tiny little piece that the other groups miss, it will be worth it. And as it turned out, our one tiny little piece was you really do need the whole sgRNA. You okay. can't truncate it and remove the last hairpin without limiting, limiting activity. Okay. And then we led, that led to a, you know, sort of a year of feverish activity before yeah. Prashant and I both realized that there were a lot of other people doing this and yeah. perhaps our services were not required. Uh -huh. So we kind of <laughs> bowed out, but right around that time I thought, well, what happens if you put CRISPR into a eukaryotic cell? What if you teach the cell to do genome editing on its own so that editing would be recursive down generations? And I just, this insight just hit me. And then I thought, wait a minute, aren't there genes that do this naturally? Isn't that what an ISKI-1 does in yeast? Isn't that like a, a homing endonuclease gene drive? Yeah. Didn't somebody try to put ISKI-1 in mosquitoes, like engineer mosquitoes or something like that? And so I found Austin Burt's original gene drive paper and thought, wow, this guy was a genius. He thought of this you know, a decade ago, but you can't really engineer homing endonucleases to cut new targets. So for folks who aren't living and breathing gene drives, just maybe you could just go back to, when, when was that? That was in the early 2000s, right? Austin Burt's paper? Yes. Yeah. So let's see. Let's take a step back. So I thought, well, what happens if you encode the CRISPR system for making a change along with the change in the genome? Yeah. So that way, when your organism mates with another organism, the offspring inherit one copy of the edit and the CRISPR system used to make that edit. So in the offspring's germline, it will cut the wild-type version and replace it with itself. Then that ensures the next generation inherits. Mm -hmm. And editing happens again. Yeah. Meaning this system distorts inheritance in its favor. Right. Now, this is a very common phenomenon in nature. I realize this is exactly how this ISKI-1 homing endonuclease enzyme works in the wild. It cuts chromosomes that don't have it and copies itself over using the cell's natural repair mechanisms. And I learned that Austin Burt, who's at Imperial College London, had first proposed that we harness these naturally occurring gene drive systems that yeah. work by homing into nucleases yeah. to edit wild populations and especially malarial mosquitoes right. to eventually eradicate malaria. Okay. And in fact, Austin had been working on doing this along with Gates Foundation backing and the help of Andrea Crisanti, a, a mosquito biologist at Imperial, for the last almost 10 years. Yeah. 
But the challenge they faced is it's fiendishly difficult to work with a homing endonucleases and get them to target the sequences you want. Uh-huh. And so they were anticipating a 20-year project and a couple billion dollars to get it working in one species. Yeah. And I realized, well, with CRISPR, yeah. you can probably target many different genes trivially. Yeah. There's a reason why you couldn't do a CRISPR-based gene trap and concluded, well, there probably wasn't. And this is amazing. We can like eradicate malaria. And then the next day I thought, well, crap. <laughs> this will work in pretty much any species that reproduces quickly and sexually. Yeah. And what are we going to do about this? Yeah. And so fortunately, I have a very wise mentor in the form of George. And yeah. He introduced me to a few other people. Yeah. Um, Jean-Tine Lunchoff, the ethicist he works with, who still ad- still advises me and works actually much more closely with my group now. Uh-huh. And Ken Oya, who does political science on SynBio stuff at MIT. And so we... Talked about it a lot, thought about how can this go wrong? What are the pros and cons? Ken suggested we bring it up at a at a meeting he was organizing on the ecological implications of synthetic biology. Yeah. So we talked about it there, got feedback from security types, you know, ecologists, evolutionary biologists, representatives of environmental NGOs, and everyone pretty much agreed that A, this is not much of a direct physical threat just because it's slow, it only spreads over generations. It's Easily detectable if you look for it by sequencing. Can't really hide it. And CRISPR is powerful enough that you can't really build a gene drive that can't be targeted with CRISPR, meaning whatever one person does, another person can overwrite. And anything slow, obvious, and easily blocked is not much of a threat. So we weren't really worried about misuse in that sense, but we were deeply worried about an accident or unauthorized use. So we wanted to ensure that this kind of research was done transparently and used appropriate safeguards. We wanted to make sure that everyone was aware of safeguards. I'm impressed, from the way you've just described it, that you were really grappling with the ethical potential and societal implications of this technology even before you'd really set out to kind of show that it could work in an experimental fashion. Well, I think this is really... We were very fortunate in that this was a new time for biology because pre-CRISPR, I mean, most things failed. You couldn't assume that something would work yeah. just by knowing which parts you were going to use. Yeah. But by this time, you know, a year or so, after a year and a bit of working with CRISPR, yeah. we knew that the rules were different. And the thing about CRISPR-based gene drive is it is exactly CRISPR genome editing just made heritable. Right. Now, you mentioned CRISPR and gene drives in the context of malaria. Did you think about working in that area yourself? Because... As we'll come to in a minute, you've been focusing on a very different uh, problem in a very different community. So how did you weigh those choices? Well, so we did talk to some local um, mosquito biologists, uh, Flaminia Cataruccia and her student, Andy Smidler. And Where are they, they based? And they're based at Harvard School of Public oh. Health. So they were right next door, which yeah. is why, why we talked to them. Local. And, okay. and so they were interested in sort of exploring that. And they joined us in writing the original paper, okay. that, which we described CRISPR-based gene drive in, in eLife. And... Um, then with Ken and a bunch of other people, we wrote a piece on regulation and how research should be open in, in science. So okay. that was how we ended up telling the world and emphasizing, if you're going to build these things, or in fact, even if you're just using CRISPR with a vector that encodes both the nuclease and the guides in one piece of DNA, if those guides target the genome and the whole thing self-inserts, even accidentally, you might make a gene drive without even realizing it. Or we were concerned people might make a might make a CRISPR-based gene drive 
for reasons other than editing wild populations, perhaps not even realizing that it might, if it escaped into the wild, okay. affect a wild population. So these were the, our concerns. And we also really wanted to make sure that anyone doing this research was doing it in the open mm -hmm. and thinking very carefully about these issues and mm -hmm. in inviting outside concerns and criticism. Mm -hmm. Now, as it turned out, closeted research, that is the traditional way we do things, of course, opposes this kind of transparency. But the real downside of it is that it prevents us from getting early advice unless we deliberately go out of our way to seek it out ourselves. And it makes it nearly impossible to warn other people because you have no idea what anybody else is doing. And as it turned out, another group had, in fact, independently invented CRISPR-based gene drive up just a few months after our publication, and they had never seen it. Mm -hmm. So they didn't realize at first that it might spread in the wild, and they performed their initial experiments without that, and therefore didn't use the, frankly, very stringent safeguards that we had proposed. And that was a group in California? That was a group in California. Yeah. And, you know, these are brilliant, well-meaning scientists. Mm. And they came from a completely different background. It was their first time working with CRISPR, mm -hmm. developing new tools. They hadn't really been tool developers before either. Yeah. And they had just never come across the notion of gene drive or anything like that. And why would they? You know, they were developmental biologists. That's a totally different area. And this is the problem with modern science. You have to be lucky enough to mm. have the right kind of background to even have a chance mm. at predicting the consequences of what you're working on. Mm. And anytime you move into a different area, you might develop a tool that can be combined with somebody else's tool that you may not even be aware of that mm. could have some pretty powerful implications for society. Okay. And to just underscore how, how profound an impact this can be, this, can, this kind of thing can have, six years ago, pre-CRISPR and eukarya, mm -hmm. no one, no human had ever imagined that we might be able to edit entire wild species. Mm. I mean, Austin envisioned doing it for one species with a tremendous amount of effort, but yeah. no one ever, ever imagined that we might yeah. be able to do this routinely someday. Yeah. The concept is completely absent from science fiction at the time. <laughs> Literally, no human ever conceived that we might yeah. be able to do this. And all of a sudden, boom, yeah. looks like we can. So we're pretty lucky that it's not much of a physical or ecological threat just because it is slow, obvious, and easily overwritten. Yeah. Right. Didn't have to be that way. Okay. You can imagine if, imagine if CRISPR was a little less versatile. You know, yeah. suppose you can suppose you have a much larger PAM requirement. And they all require that, and it's sort of built into the mechanism, so you can't yeah. engineer them to be better. Yeah. So you can hit any, you know, sequence typically one every two hundred fifty six bases. Right. Say, then you could build a gene drive that would work in the wild, but you could engineer yours to lack CRISPR accessible target sites, right. meaning it could not be overwritten. Okay then your security implications are completely different. Okay. If you remove the easily overwritten, slow and obvious, sure, but if you can't do anything about it, that would be a problem. So a lot of people here, and then we'll come to your, your, your current interest in, in, in New England, um, but you hear that people would, would not even countenance a gene drive, whether it be for malaria or in any other context, unless it's reversible. Is that a valid concern, or do you feel, based on some of the things you've been saying, that that's sort of uh, missing the point? The reversibility thing very much depends on your application. Okay. I mean, for something like malaria, there is such a powerful case for doing something. Yes. That is, I would absolutely respect 
So first of all, I'm not, I don't live in Africa. My, children, my kids are not going to be affected by malaria. I don't get a vote. But I completely respect anyone who is affected, who yeah. has had their families impacted, who says, our kids are dying now. Yeah. Why are you waiting around talking about yeah. this? We should get on do something, yeah. get on with it. Yeah. And there's a very powerful case for doing that. Yeah. And similarly, the challenge we're, that of the that original kind of gene drive faces is that it is what we call self-propagating. That is, it copies itself every generation indefinitely. Okay. This is not one of the things that we emphasized in that original paper. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's in there, mm -hmm. but we didn't really underscore it because we sort of, I guess, assumed that it was obvious. Mm. I mean, the whole point of, the whole promise of this is that it will spread on its own in the wild. Mm. And when something spreads on its own in the wild, usually it, it doesn't stop. It mm. spreads until it fills its ecological niche. In mm -hmm. this case, the ecological niche is all organisms of that particular species mm. that have the relevant target sites. But we learned that a lot of people don't see it that way mm -hmm. and really do seem to believe that it's possible, for example, to conduct a contained field trial Mm -hmm. of a self-propagating gene drive because mm -hmm. this is the only reasonable thing to do when you're doing ecological engineering mm -hmm. is you don't we don't really understand the ecosystem well enough to mm -hmm. predict in advance mm -hmm. what will happen this is ecology is not like crispr where right. you can just be confident that it will work the way you think right you have to start first make the smallest possible change you think can solve the problem in order to minimize your mm -hmm. unexpected side effects but number two you have to start small and local and see what the effects are mm -hmm. and then scale up mm -hmm. gradually but a self-propagating gene drive doesn't let you do that. Mm. You probably can't run a contained field trial. Okay. And yet a lot of people sort of proceeded because the default system is that's how you do things. And so they sort of proceeded under the assumption that you could, which is deeply worrisome because to the extent that someone tries to run a field trial and it escapes yes. and starts spreading country, cross con country boundaries, yeah. cross continents, you get a lot of potential for a backlash okay. against the technology, very similar to how gene therapy was delayed. Yeah. And in the case of potential to eradicate malaria, you delay yeah. Austin and Andrea and their team. Yeah. If you make it 1% less likely that African nations decide to move forwards yeah. for a decade, yeah. The expected cost of that 1% chance is 25,000 dead kids. Right, right. Dying of malaria yeah. who could have been prevented. That's a pretty considerable cost. Absolutely. So, and a lot of people, and I'm, I'm acutely aware that some of the things that I have said in saying, you can't run a field trial, this is kind of a problem. I always add in, and for malaria, you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Right? Malaria is a big enough problem. Right. There is no conceivable set of side effects dreamed up by right. everyone who's ever considered the problem right. looking at potential ecological relationships. Right. No one could imagine a yeah. combined set of circumstances where the side effects would be worse than malaria because malaria is just that bad. Yeah. So, yeah, if we're against malaria, just go for it. All right. But everything else, you probably don't want to. <laughs>